Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Every Horror Movie on Netflix. It's that podcast where we watch, review, and discuss every horror movie on Netflix. I'm Patrick, and I'm back this week, as always, with Chris. Howdy. And Steven. Hola. How's it going, you guys? What have you been uh, watching in these post-Halloween weeks now that we got Hubie Halloween out of the way? It's going really well, you know. I'm I'm kind of coming down off, you know. It's it's not Halloween season anymore. People are packing up the decorations. Kind of a sad thing to see every year. We got to wait, you know, another uh, eleven months. But I'm hopeful. I'm hoping maybe it's ten months or nine months because I know some people started Halloween in September this year. I'm hoping that trend continues. I would like to have a Halloween season that lasts maybe from June through November, uh, oh, yeah. and maybe we'll get there in my lifetime. <laughs> We can all we can all only hope. Christmas also weirdly started way earlier than usual this year. I think it's a pandemic thing. So I think your June through November Halloween season may be largely dependent on whether this pandemic is still uh, significantly with us by next summer. So I guess there's pros and cons to that particular situation. Stephen, what have you been up to? You know, I'm back in my bullshit. Been watching a lot of horror lately, and I watched a couple of N films. Yes. Uh, his house in Atlantic, both uh, immigrant stories, ghost stories of very different kinds. His house is more of a haunted house story. Atlantic's is more of a haunted town story. Highly recommend them both. They were both chilling in uh, in very different ways, but both very effective. And I caught up on a horror classic I've wanted to see since I was a teenager, but it's really hard to find. Um, Patrick, I know I've talked to you about this a little bit, but uh, the Polish director Andrzej Zlobski's Possession, starring Sam Neill of all people, and yes. wow, if you can get your hands on this, it is it does Lovecraft accidentally, I would say, better than any Lovecraft adaptation I have ever seen. Sam Neill does Possession better than any actor in anything I've ever seen, so. <laughs> He's, uh, I don't know if he's great or terrible in this movie, and that speaks to uh, pretty much every performance in this thing. It's kind of a ballet. Uh, it's about a crumbling marriage, and there's also a Lovecraftian tentacled monster in it, designed by the guy who created E.T., of all things. Um, it's like this art house movie with like serious cosmic horror energy. I can't recommend it highly enough. Listeners... This thing is expensive. You have to get it on Blu-ray. I spent 40 bucks on it just to see it. You can't rent it anywhere. Give me your mailing address. I'll wipe it down. I'll ship it to you if you want to check it out. You, know, you might not get it back, Stephen. <laughs> you know, that's fine. Once is enough. It was it was a kind of a little pandemic party movie. Had a hoot. I don't think I need to see it again. It's not a great movie, but it is very memorable. Hmm. Well, mail it to me first. I really want to see it. And then we can mail it off to the listeners. I'll just drop it off at your place. You're close enough. Yeah, that sounds good. So I didn't watch any horror uh, lately, but I did watch, um, you know, kind of coming off our last discussion of Hubie Halloween, I watched Big Daddy, which uh, we slept on. <laughs> I saw in theaters. I have yeah. Um, and, you know, it was it was good. Um, I don't know if I have that much to say about it, but, you know, a, a, a decent movie. Um, the one thing that really struck me about it, which I'm going to mention because we talked about uh, this when we talked about Freddy versus Jason, um, you know, the 2000s were rife with with movies making like a lot of homophobic jokes and big daddy is surprisingly progressive there's two gay characters and the script goes out of its way to have adam sandler talk about how they're just in love like anybody else and it's a beautiful thing and i thought that was kind of uh, unexpected so that's my one comment on big daddy god bless uh everyone involved god bless the sandman he's a good guy Big Daddy, an, an LGBTQ classic. Does, does, okay, let me ask you a, a question. I'm hoping for a hot take, but does Big Daddy make up for, uh, what is that movie, Chuck and Larry? I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah. I didn't see I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Is it homophobic? I've heard so. I haven't seen it on that basis alone. All um, right, well, maybe he's bad in 50%. 
but I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I saw that movie when it came out. I don't know how old I was, like preteen, and I thought it was very sweet. I uh, shockingly don't remember any any gay subtext or text in it whatsoever. So hmm. maybe I'll revisit it too. What What about you, Patrick? You uh, been watching anything exciting lately? I have actually directly prompted by our uh, selection of this week, and I'm going to talk about it right now for just a minute because I'm going to try not to talk about it during our discussion of today's film. I just watched uh, Manhunter, which is Michael Mann's 1986, I believe, adaptation of the novel Red Dragon. Um, So it's the OG film adaptation of the movie that we watched today, Red Dragon. And damn had a great time with this movie. Um, I had seen it once before, but for some reason it didn't really click with me the first time. This time around, really enjoyed it. It's got all the Michael Mann trademarks, you know, fucking amazing visuals, incredible music. I was bumping the soundtrack before we started recording today. And a great cast. You've got Brian Cox, you've got Tom Noonan, you've got Stephen Lang, pre-Avatar, pre-Don't Breathe, like completely unrecognizable with curly hair as uh, Freddie Lowndes. But yeah, really had a great time with Manhunter, and I'm going to try my damnedest not to continue to reference my great experience with it throughout our discussion on Red Dragon. But yeah, so uh, we just uh, watched a, a drama about you know a, a incredibly uh, heinous, sick maniac who's such a threat. You have to uh, stop him by turning to someone almost as heinous and equally dark. Uh, but enough about the election. Let's talk about Red Dragon. Wow. Wow. You said that was a dank segue, and I think we're going to have to litigate that after the episode. <laughs> but yes, the 2002 adaptation of Red Dragon, directed by none other than the great Brett Ratner. Can I? Okay. I got I to gotta take a pause right here, guys. Yeah. Brett Ratner. Wow. There was a time yeah. where that was like, I feel like that was like a household name if you knew anything about movies. What is Brett Ratner known for like X-Men. as a director other than the sexual assault allegations? Not even X-Men, like Rush Hour. That's his bread and butter. That's where the man made his name, I guess, if you want to call it that. I mean, he did also direct one of the most reviled X-Men movies. But yeah, Rush Hour is kind of his main thing. He actually hasn't directed a lot of films, which I also found kind of surprising, because like you said, Stephen, I mean, this guy is known, but hasn't made a ton of movies, actually. Well, and I think he's donezo, like Brian Singer. I yeah. mean, you were kind of simpatico and both probably going to the same illicit parties. Oh, God. When I said X-Men, I was thinking of Brian Singer. I got the two confused. Oh, That's easy okay. to do. <laughs> I guess because they both directed X-Men movies and both have sexual assault allegations, but... <laughs> That's a pretty small club. That's a pretty small club. <laughs> at least... Okay. Well, sure. But at least the, sim- the similarities end there. I mean, Brian Singer is a good filmmaker like has made some good films that have interesting themes whereas red dragon is i want to say kind of the only like capital f film that brett ratner made this movie is such a weird outlier for him and that it's a sober drama starring an incredible cast of actors and you know this guy is mostly known for like pretty dude bro kind of movies but I think that's all we have to say about Brian. <laughs> God damn it. Not Brian Singer. <laughs> Brett Ratner. <laughs> uh, Brett yeah. Singer. Brian Fuller. Oh, no. Brian. No, we're not. Oh, God damn it. I can't associate Brian Fuller with Brian Singer. Good God. No, Brian Fuller is a saint. Oh, love Brian Fuller. And I'm going to try not to reference his version of this story too much today because it was also covered in the TV series Hannibal. Going to try and stay off that, though. Red Dragon. It's the story of Will Graham an FBI agent who gets out of the game uh, because Hannibal Lecter, the famous Hannibal Lecter, fucked him over. And he gets pulled in. One last job, pulled back in to track down a serial killer called the Tooth Fairy. You got Edward Norton as Will Graham, Anthony Hopkins reprising Hannibal Lecter. Ray Fiennes as the Tooth Fairy. That's your setup. And Philip Seymour Hoffman as the burning man in the wheelchair. (laughs) And, and don't forget Harvey Keitel as the uh, FBI superior officer, Jack Crawford. Yes. Harvey Keitel does some serious glasses acting in this movie. <laughs> Did that bother anyone else? Harvey Keitel just, it's like, is it even acting? It's like, it's just, just playing that character just to oh, a yeah. T. 
Like that character that's in every cop movie. <laughs> yeah. So the, there was kind of a flub earlier with subbing Mindhunter for Manhunter. And he's basically like the older FBI agent for Manhunter in this. You segment. mean Mindhunter? My God damn it. I just did it while I was talking about it. Man, all our brains are mush today. I mean, pretty much. I'm scrambling. <laughs> and every day. <laughs> You know, I, I think the Mindhunter, Manhunter flub is kind of indicative of, of this whole genre of, like, profiling stories yes. that, you know, we've kind of had a run of for the past 20-something years. Sure, it's basically, like, Mindhunter is, is about FBI agents trying to, like, classify and understand series killers, as they call them in that show. And, and I think the Thomas Harris universe is about something very similar but fictionalized it's about you know fbi agents with specialized uh, skills and abilities trying to like understand and classify what makes these horrible monsters tick it's the same shit except in the thomas harris universe hannibal lecter is the only one who understands (laughs) and so the fbi agents individually don't have to like do that much work on their own as much as they have to just coax it out of hannibal lecter so i mean manhunter is from 86 so it's older than 20 years the book came before that isn't the genre kind of more linked to the rise of you know kind of modern forensic science and modern crime scene investigation I mean, doesn't doesn't the actual like practice of how these crimes were investigated? Isn't that kind of what precipitates the popularity of this genre? Because all of a sudden you you have people who are looking at murders and and investigating them in a entirely different way, really, than ever was done before that's kind of captured the popular imagination yeah it really has captured the popular imagination and i mean in fiction um starting you know in the 80s at least but then even on in nonfiction, i remember you know when i was in school watching shows on tv like there's a show called the new detectives obviously there's forensic files which most people are familiar with but like there was a huge run in the 90s and 2000s of shows that were about like look at what the state police can do now you know you're gonna get caught if you ever commit a crime because they're gonna find your your dna on the window (laughs) it's like okay yeah really really made an impression on me as a child i was like there's absolutely no way you can ever get away with murder in the united states of america turns out that's not true but I had a similar trajectory, Chris. I had a teacher, an, an, an anatomy and phys teacher, who, when he decided to check out for the day, which was almost every day, he would just throw on an episode of Forensic Files. And I was like, fuck, if I ever even, if I was that fucked up, there's no way I could get away with it. No way I could get away clean. I would, no. I would leave a fingerprint somewhere. Oh, yeah. I, you would leave a semen sample somewhere. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I don't know about that. I don't, that's not necessarily my MO, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to tip my hand too early on my opinion of this movie, but I, I just, I think almost to discuss anything, performances, anything in it, you have to touch on sort of the odd, to me, tone of this movie and, and the odd context in which it came out. You've got Silence of the Lambs comes out, obviously is a hugely acclaimed film, wins a zillion Oscars, blah blah blah. Hannibal Lecter becomes a popular character. Mm-hmm. Dino De Laurentiis, the producer of the original film, wants another film. He basically gets Thomas Harris to write the novel Hannibal, a film Chris loves, um, and which I've been yeah. wanting to revisit, but is, I think whatever your opinion of it, insanely tonally different from Silence of the Lambs to the degree that Jodie Foster didn't want to be involved in it. And then you got to keep it going. They got to keep the Hannibal train going, but they want to bring it back to basics. So they do Red Dragon. It has more of a sober tone. It's not as balls out as Hannibal. And I feel like it's trying to go for sort of the tone and the level of prestige associated with the Silence of the Lambs. And it does it pretty well. I mean, it's a fairly well put together movie. I want to say it's well directed. It looks okay. You know, it's it's well acted. But there's just something about it that just doesn't come together. There's just so much about it that is serviceable, but just doesn't get there. Well, I have some theories. Yeah, go ahead. 
And and so to be fair, it's been a long time since I've seen the Silence of the Lambs. I think I've only seen it all, seen it all the way through once or twice. Bad horror fan, I know. But I think what's going on here is the Silence of the Lambs has two things going for it. One of them, most basically, is I think it does a little bit better character work, where you have Clarice Starling, who's a little bit more fully realized as a character, and also there's more conflict with her in the case as the movie progresses in Silence of the Lambs, which is interesting here we've got will graham who you know was friends with with hannibal lecter and then hannibal lecter tried to eat him now they're not friends and he's afraid that you know he's, he's retired and now like coming back on the case he's afraid it's going to blow back on himself and his family yeah which is interesting but it's only interesting when there's a threat to his family which isn't very often in this movie so for the most part he's just joe cop doing joe cop stuff and you don't have the kind of like insecurities and stuff that are in Clarice Starling for the whole movie. Agree. This is very procedural for most of the movie, I think. Except for like the first scene in the climax. And on that note, I want to hear the rest of your thought, but I want to chip in on that exact same note. And this is the problem I have with the Hannibal series as well, because theoretically, Will Graham doesn't want anything to do with this business anymore, and they got to bring him back for one last case. And I'm just like, aren't there like a lot of murders to be solved like all the time like why do they have to bring him in on this particular case because i can almost buy it on the basis of oh there is this unprecedented serial killer i need to come back because i alone can fix it but i'm i'm like haven't there been a million killers that they've needed to catch since will retired you know what's special about this there's just a lack of of motivation that really makes sense there to me and that's not red dragon's fault like this movie's fault that's kind of a an inherent flaw in this whole concept that was in the original novel and was extrapolated upon in the tv series but i do struggle with really like why do they need will for this specific case and why is he motivated to answer that call well i mean they 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 reach out to him because they want to use him to get to lector why they want to get to lector specifically for this case is a little less clear it is unclear and and will graham has this complex about saving lives yeah. Like, which is also very underdeveloped and very kind of ham-fisted the way it's... It actually left me with more questions than answers. I never really felt like I understood his psyche and his motivation throughout this entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So my second point is a hot take, but... Oh. You have two things to say about this. <laughs> I think another difference between this and Silence of the Lambs, which informs Hannibal to some degree is that this movie is not really as lurid as Silence of the Lambs. And I think that the lurid details in Silence of the Lambs are a large part of what captured the imagination of people, where it was like kind of had some shock value to it. If you think of what does stu- what do people remember of Silence of the Lambs? They remember like, you know, people throwing semen at, at Clarice. They remember yeah. Buffalo Bill. They remember him wearing the fucking guards face to escape from the jail or whatever like like there's really this movie kind of pulls its punches in just the fucked up degree and i I think there's something to be said for that and so you look at a movie like hannibal and i can give it some credit because i think it appreciated that aspect of silence of the lambs and said we're just gonna make a movie that's lurid as fuck from start to finish (laughs) and um i think that's maybe what they were going for with that one i haven't seen hannibal but what i've heard of it sounds like it kind of swings like too far in that direction you haven't seen hannibal i haven't seen hannibal i need to oh my god come over we're gonna watch hannibal what do you like about hannibal so much chris now again i've only seen the movie once and it was when i was much less of an adult than i am today you were younger i was younger (laughs) but it's a it is a popcorn movie it is just entertainment from start to finish and it's so like operatic in scale and literally operatic i think there's an opera in the in the movie oh, yeah. but like you know we got hannibal lecter he's globe trotting we got gary oldman with just a disfigured face out for revenge everything is just so grim and bloody and ridiculous there's a whole subplot like i'm talking a 45 minute long subplot where hannibal lecter is just trying to fuck some guy's wife <laughs> Like, (laughs) just insane. You know, a spoiler alert, Ray Liotta eats his own brain. (laughs) Like, what a film. It's it's an experience. It's decadent. It's like Bram Stoker's Dracula levels of decadent. It is. Oh, I'm into that. I I think the problem with both these sequels to The Silence of the Lambs is that they fundamentally misunderstand 
what's great about the Silence of the Lambs. I mean, it's interesting that you say you think the things that people remember about the Silence of the Lambs are, you know, the the semen being thrown and the wearing the face and the ambulance and all that. I mean, sure, that stuff is is memorable. But I mean, when you get down to it, it's a fascinating character study. It's beautifully fucking acted. And there's a lot of really interesting thematic stuff in it about uh, male gaze. It's dissecting the male gaze in a really interesting way. Yeah. Um, It's a really, really well done movie. It's a character piece. And, and, And also fundamentally, Hannibal Lecter famously is barely in it. Like you have a sense of him as this huge presence and Anthony Hopkins' name is on the poster, but he's in it. I forget how long, but his screen time is minimal. And I think Hannibal, the movie, makes the mistake of delving into the lurid stuff even further and kind of failing at least to create a movie that works the way The Sounds of the Lambs does. And then Red Dragon tries to dial it back and, again, do this somber kind of thing. But also, it's still too fixated on Hannibal. Like, it still thinks the movie is too much about Hannibal. This movie begins and ends with Hannibal. Anthony Hopkins is turning the camp up to a fucking 11 in this movie. (laughs) He really does. Oh, with his fucking ponytail, too. He just feels completely out of place, and it's got weirdly that same energy that we talk about with some of these, like Halloween and, and Nightmare on Elm Street, where the villain has become so popular that they almost have no choice or, or can't see any path other than to essentially make him the protagonist. And it doesn't work. Well, I don't know. I mean, does it work? There's a lot of different ways to kind of watch this. I mean, if you're expecting the Silence of the Lamb sequel or if you're expecting something that's going to recapture the magic, the lightning in a bottle sort of thing of Silence of the Lambs, which, which honestly, Silence of the Lambs probably works um, better than anyone had intended when they made the movie. Like, I, I think there's a lot of kind of, it was a kind of a perfect storm that made that movie as good as it is. But for me watching this, since it's been so long since I've seen any of these movies, and I actually did see Red Dragon um, when I was in college. I watched it, but I, I remember almost nothing about it. I kind of went into this just kind of as a clean slate like okay let's see this movie let's see what it's about and then and almost as if it was a movie on an island that the other movies didn't exist uh-huh and i think it works just as a as a kind of by the numbers thriller it does the job chris i went into it with a very similar perspective i i did see this in the theater i and at the last episode i mentioned there were two moments that i still remember vividly from that experience uh which both held up remarkably well for me but i tried to just like divorce this from what i know about the hannibal you know mythology which is a lot less than patrick knows and yeah it works as a by the numbers thriller but it's it doesn't really have a style it doesn't have an identity i don't know it's just bland and i don't know if it's that it's dated and that some other films and tv series have done this kind of story just better recently like mindhunter and like the hannibal series or what but it it's kind of a sleepy movie let me tell you one of the sleepiest things about it to me and maybe one of the biggest problems is edward norton i mean an actor who i do like and who i think is a good actor in a lot of things but boy just kind of fails to to catch fire in this for me one of my favorite little moments is and and this is you know not entirely his fault you know this character will graham one of the main things is that he's highly extremely empathetic and this is how he catches killers he goes into the crime scene and he empathizes with the killer and reconstructs what they did and that's a difficult thing to represent on film manhunter the movie and this movie both represent it a lot of the time as him just fucking talking to himself which is you know that's easier to do when you're thomas harris writing a novel it's harder to do in a movie but one of the silliest fucking moments is early on this is like in the first 20 minutes will graham is at the crime scene and he's like putting together there was talcum powder on this woman's leg and he's figuring out that the killer touched her and he talks through this by going he touched her he touched her touched touched he says it four times in a row and then we also get a gratuitous breast shot in the first 20 minutes which i'm like okay there's the brett ratner directorial trademark right there is we've got some boobs in the first 20 minutes it's just i don't know there's just something about that line reading combined with gratuitous breast shot where i'm just like oh man this is it's not just the line reading but it's like it's like he is supposed to be this kind of savant 
And there's this huge buildup to him realizing, like, oh, the killer took his gloves off. Talcum powder. I'm like, I, I could figure yeah, that out. Yeah, this is not a like huge revelation. <laughs> right. Like, what are you talking about? Right. But his performance, it, it, it's serviceable. I don't think he's given a lot to do in the script, though. Yeah. I also want to point out, his hair is very frosty in this movie. It and that is. was distracting to me. It's very blonde. Yeah. Very 2002. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little more than the tips, but it uh, his roots are showing. Yeah. Well, look, let me let me make a shameless plug here um, because, you know, obviously, like we just dis- like we've discussed these profiler forensic investigator uh, dramas are are many. But if you're interested in this kind of thing, if you watch this movie and like I did, you really enjoy the scenes for the most part of Edward Norton, Will Graham going through these houses, trying to recreate what happened with uh, the serial killers using his special gift to get inside the mind of a maniac. Check out the TV series Millennium by the creators of the X-Files starring Lance Henriksen. You're laughing because I make I talk about Millennium too much. I do really want to see it actually. But no, it's a it's a good show and this is this is what it's about. Lance Henriksen is a uh he's a retired profiler who from the FBI who now works as a uh contractor for local police to solve these heinous heinous crimes and there's some really chilling shit especially in the first season which is more by the numbers procedural stuff. Um there's a lot of misses on that show lots of bad episodes but there are some truly phenomenal episodes and it's always fun to see lance henrickson walking through a crime scene having visions of the murders and 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 grimacing i mean if we're making recommendations of tv shows to watch instead of this movie like obviously i'll say for the nine millionth and i think final i'm gonna lay it to rest but obviously watch fucking hannibal the show because the last half of the final season is devoted to the story of manhunter and or red dragon and it's great yeah i've only seen the first two seasons and they were my god so brilliant so um how did you guys feel i already kind of talked about this a bit myself but i'm just curious how you guys reacted to anthony hopkins in this movie this is mostly because of the direction and the cinematography i think and also just how much he's in the movie he's not threatening you like you see him stacked up against taller actors multiple times in this film like he just looks kind of small and yeah i don't, I, I can't really put my finger on it but it he didn't capture the magic of that performance from Sounds of the Lambs and i think a lot of that is that in Sounds of the Lambs he's only in the movie for like 10 minutes or something but it feels like he's there all the time when you see him he's looking directly at you tak fujimoto jonathan demi's cinematographer famously would shoot people looking directly into the camera in this very special way and it felt like he was camping it up a little bit too in mm-hmm. some of his line readings yeah and some of that stuff is still in this movie when he's you know staring into the camera and everything like that my problem was i felt like every time hannibal lecter was on screen they were trying to shoot it or direct it as a direct call back to silence of the lambs mm. yeah but you know like it felt like they were trying to do shot for shot remakes of stuff from silence of the lambs for the sake of saying oh it's like when we saw it in silence of the lambs instead of you know building uh, uh its own emotional tenor yeah like they try and restage that walk down the corridor to visit hannibal for the first time which is one of the most iconic scenes from silence of the lambs which you know probably actually you know to go back to your point about what people remember from silence of the lambs chris probably does not benefit from the fact that that walk down the corridor does have the semen throwing moment in it you know and you have nothing quite so shocking and also just Norton's performance isn't giving you a whole lot in that moment. Like, this guy should be fucking traumatized and shaking by returning to talk to this guy who attacked him. But you just, you don't get a real sense of the gravity of that moment. And then it's just, oh, Hannibal's here. And Hannibal in this movie is like full dry Freddy. He's like fully dry Freddy. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. He's dry Freddy. You know, he's still Freddy, but he's dry. Yeah. Exactly. I did enjoy the scenes with him and, and Will Graham, though. I thought it was some of the highlights of the the, the movie. Um, I mean, as it was designed to be, I guess. I never got bored when the two were talking to each other. Um, I, I read that they actually went to Thomas Harris and had him help build out some new material so they could have more Hannibal in this movie than, hmm. than was called for. Wow. And that's the movie's detriment, I think. I yeah. mean, the, those scenes don't feel... I don't know. They don't feel special 
in the way that they did in Sounds of the Lambs. It feels like, oh, here's our old friend Hannibal Lecter. Like, you just kind of forget what a monster he is. I never really felt an ounce of intimidation. Right, because the character has reached a point where he's beloved in pop culture. I mean, I, I'm, I'm joking about Dry Freddy to a degree, but also it has a lot of that Freddy energy where the character yeah. has become a joke and something that people have developed a weird affinity to in, in pop culture. And the movie reflects that. You know, he's more there to make creepy little cannibalism jokes, you know, like the dinner party at the beginning where, you know, the mm-hmm. the socialite is oh, like oh what is this amuse bouche it tastes divine and Lecter's like if i told you you'd never eat it which if someone said that to me at a dinner party i'd be like i'm not gonna fucking eat it anyway Same. now what the fuck yeah. who talks yeah. like that at a dinner party i mean it's 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 designed to deliver a series of essentially like hannibal's equivalent of welcome to prime time bitch become a meme at this point yeah exactly and this whole movie is kind of a meme i mean like no spoilers but it ends with a tease for a sequel that we've already seen yes oh yeah like i don't understand this entire exercise but well that's the that's the other thing because he loses some power because we know this is a prequel to silence of the lambs yeah and we know that like he's not gonna escape from the asylum and and run wild or anything like he's pretty confined so so the extent of his menace is what he can do from inside the four walls of his cell which does they do play on that a little bit and that is a pretty good uh moment in the movie and a pretty scary moment in the movie where where hannah is 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 basically trying to use the tooth fairy to kill will graham that's scary maybe a little underdeveloped but overall i don't really have any complaints with the hannibal lecter stuff um i did think it was a little campy because at the beginning in the in the prologue i thought he was a really charismatic villain and then it's weird because in his first scene he's playing that hannibal and then in his second scene he's like full camp movie monster hannibal and uh i thought that was kind of a jarring transition but uh, overall i think it, it evened out i am not gonna fault this movie for for Hannibal Lecter there's not a lot I will fault this movie for at all um actually I thought pretty much everything in it was competent and and had its effect and and held my attention all the way through it's just kind of a little formulaic and and so on oh it's highly watchable I mean I I'd seen it before in theaters I watched it last night and like couldn't take my eyes off the screen yeah there's some cringy stuff in it and it's not nearly as effective as, as Sounds of the Lambs. But, you know, it's a it's a well-made thriller, even by today's standards, I think. You know, I was kind of comparing yeah. it in my mind to Mindhunter um, in the Hannibal series. And just thought, like, okay, like, this is like 18 years old at this point, I think, right? Mm-hmm. 2002? Like, you know, good on you, 2002. You made a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, it's not great. We've improved some things as far as storytelling and, and direction. But... You know, it, it makes sense to me that this was a huge hit when it came out. This movie made like $200 million at the box office, and that didn't surprise me. So uh, let's dig into a little bit more of the the plot and the other elements that don't have to do with Will and, and, and Hannibal. The Tooth Fairy is killing people, trying to become a character from William Blake's painting, The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in the Sun, which is Thomas Harris bizarre concept just such an obscure thing you know thomas harris probably just saw this painting and he was like well that looks weird what if a serial killer was trying to become that guy and you spin a whole book it's out a of fucking it, you know? terrifying painting it is it's a wild I mean, william blake painting. is a fascinating figure in history but like oh my god i think this movie is was my introduction to that painting and like i want a full like movie poster sized version of that on my wall mm. because i'm surrounded by horror iconography but yeah, uh, Francis Dallarhide, the Tooth Fairy, is trying to become this dragon. He's killing families, and he's identifying families by the photo processing lab that he works with. He has access to see people's family films, and he's identifying families that he wants to kill that way. Which almost sounds like a spoiler, but it's really not, because one of the interesting things about this movie in any version the story in any version is that you're one step ahead of the investigators the whole time like you see what dollar hide is doing you see 
for the most part, his MO. So like, as Will is learning these things, it's not necessarily a surprise. It's more about like the timing of when Will and the FBI are going to catch up to you. It's very unusual. He's just a creeper who's just existing on the sidelines of society. But like, we don't ever really learn much about his motivation, which was really, really surprising to me, considering the fact that he's like fucking tattooing his body, you know, in, in uh, trying to replicate this or pay tribute to this William Blake painting. But like, I don't know what's going on inside of his mind. I, I have a better sense of that in the other sort of Hannibal mythos shows and movies that i've seen it's it's just green goblin it's it's textbook green goblin shit he's going crazy the painting's talking to him his mom's talking to him from the picture on the wall and he's like no no don't let it take me and and that's basically his motivation which is all fine but patrick does have an interesting point because yeah this is you are one step ahead of the investigators kind of the whole time which can be very very boring if you'll indulge me in referencing another chris carter tv series now that i've already mentioned millennium uh the worst x-files episodes are the ones where like you know from the first 10 minutes we're like well it's a fucking vampire and then Mulder and scully it takes them to like the 45th <laughs> minute to figure out it's a vampire yeah, yeah. The, those are the worst x-files and so you can really go wrong with that concept but what, what works in this movie is i think the procedural shit of how these guys are investigating and building their case is so compelling that it almost plays like one of these new detective shows or something like that and you're kind of just brought through the process and then it doesn't really matter that we kind of know who this guy is we just want to find out how the investigators are going to figure it out that that's the kind of the strongest part of the movie for me and i do think that's all very well put together i mean going back to the novel i think i think the way this crime comes together the way they figure it out and this guy's mo are all like pretty interesting and and fairly original i i do want to follow up on what Uh, I think Steven said about the motivation and Chris kind of touched on this as well, but I love how like essentially the main hint of his motivation you get is in this voiceover of his mom, like yelling at him or maybe it's his grandma. I forget. Was that Lynn Shay? I need to look that up because it sounds (laughs) like Lynn Shay. I had the same fucking thought, but I don't think Lynn Shay would have sounded that old at the time, but I did Google it. But it's not even like a flashback. We just hear the voiceover and like him as a child yelling like, no, no. And she's like threatening to cut his dick off and stuff, which is later that comes back later in a kind of weird way. But yeah, it's I don't know that 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 backstory is just it's there, but it's just so thinly sketched and so briefly presented. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was that was very odd to me. I did enjoy Ray Fiennes, though. I mean, I, I always think he's great, but he's he's good in this and god damn it he is a creeper and i mean this is the thing in any incarnation of this story but you know we have this weird romance between him and his blind co-worker and in any incarnation of this story the first time that he offers her a ride home and literally says like come with me and this is quotes this is a direct quote for my pleasure and she's like oh okay in any version of this story i'm always like what do not get in the car with the man who asked you to get in the car for his pleasure. She wanted pleasure too. She was really turned on by him. She's the, this, she might be the horniest character I've seen in any movie. Well, she also has her coworker that she describes as a walking dick who wants to take her home to have a sundowner with her, <laughs> which I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound consensual. <laughs> oh man. Uh, the the scene and this is so brett ratner as well i don't know this may be in the novel this detail may be in the novel but just this particular depiction was so strange to me where uh you know he takes her home and they're gonna have sex for the first time she's coming on to him pretty strongly while he's watching his videos of the people that he's killed and she goes down on him while he's like got this the video paused on a still frame of the woman that he is about to kill like in her bathing suit and he's like ogling her body as that's great the blind woman goes down on him i don't know it was just such a strange touch by that point we are kind of at least for me starting to build sympathy for this guy because uh you know he's got kind of a sweet little romance story with his blind co-worker um 
it seems like he's at a crossroads in his life where he's like trying to choose a path where he's not killing people. Uh, he does become sympathetic. I think it's easy to root for this little love story and everything like that. And then, yeah, it is, it is dissonant to be like, oh, I, I want them to to start making out or something. But, oh, he, he can't do that. But until he gets turned on by his murder victim thing. Um, but, you know, again, it's the thing. It's the, the whole conflict within this character is that he's conflicted and insane and unstable um except for when he's you know uh in full chewing the scenery villain mode acting as the dragon saying do you see and all that stuff which is equally entertaining yeah uh, i just realized though he wasn't in the credits but the other co-worker at the shop who was trying to hit on our blind hero um looked really really familiar to me yeah. and i couldn't place him it's brett from pulp fiction Oh, wow. Wow. That's wild. God, we haven't even talked about Philip Seymour Hoffman. We haven't. Oh, let's devote a moment to Philip Seymour Hoffman before we roll down to the spoiler room. I mean, he's great. I mean, he's always like great. A, a moment of silence, or you he want to talk about him? obnoxious in this movie. I hate his character, hate his performance. What? You hate the performance, really? That's interesting. What do you dislike about the performance? Somebody I read a while ago, like long before he died, said that like Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the most obnoxious actors in film because he is not generous. He is trying to steal every single moment he's in. I largely disagree with that, but this movie lent some credence to his theory. Like he is just so fucking over the top and loud. He swallows up the scene whenever he whenever he shows I up. I disagree with that. He's kind of just shuffling through, right? Like, like if anything, you could blame Philip Seymour Hoffman for like getting drunk the day before shooting and 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 not learning his lines and just and just shuffling through this. But that's what the character is supposed to be. It's a great it's performance. What the character is supposed to be, but it's still like he's like weirdly distracting for what a minor figure he is in the large scheme of this that movie. is that all right okay that is true because yeah this 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 role calls for a no-name actor it should be like mike white or somebody should be playing this character like not philip seymour hoffman with it with those shops just that play energy. this straight we don't need the obnoxious tabloid guy to just be like so you're gonna give you're gonna give me a, you're gonna give me a story today or well, right <laughs> i mean this is kind of your stock pushy journalist character who is always trying to insert himself and and that's a type but i think he you know as chris said he kind of shuffles through it he's kind of slurring his lines but he still has that personality where you can understand why he's a thorn in everybody's side and to me it came off as a character that felt more more real as opposed to just that that caricature that you've seen a thousand times i i really liked him in this and i in fact i think that the space that he takes up is entirely appropriate to what the character is I felt like it was a cartoon, and I, again, the second time I've seen this movie, I still laughed out loud with glee when I saw him on fire in the wheelchair (laughs) (laughs) riding down the road. That was so satisfying for me because I no longer wanted to see that character in this film. Yeah, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman gets abducted by the Red Dragon killer and forced to watch a PowerPoint um, <laughs> and a- gets absolutely menaced. He gets duct taped to a chair. He's trying, or, or, or super glued to a chair, rather. Um, he duct tape. I was thinking of Suicide Kings still. Uh, this has been a Suicide Kings week for me. Um, Wait, what um, week is so- I don't know what that means? <laughs> so he's 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 super glued to a chair he's absolutely menaced he's trying to bargain his way out of it he's trying to play into the red dragon's delusion and 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 be like oh i understand yes this is really profound we need to make sure all my readers understand your you know moral blah 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 whatever um which is interesting because the red dragon's ultimately defeated because the our profiler character successfully plays into his delusion because he's smarter than Philip Seymour Hoffman. But the thing that's funny is there's a jump cut to Philip Seymour Hoffman on fire going down a street in a wheelchair. And the reason it elicits a laugh from me, even though it's horrifying, I think, is because it's so not what you're expecting to happen to him. (laughs) Like, they're in a secluded location being menaced. You think he's just going to slit his throat or something because that's what he's, he's there for. And instead, we just get this, like, way over-the-top death scene. Something that would have been more at home in Hannibal. I will say it is 
certainly an unforgettable image. Well, if you'll indulge me one more shameless plug, anyone who's interested in Philip Seymour Hoffman needs to watch Mission Impossible 3. Oh, yeah. His his greatest performance. No. If you don't believe no. me, just shut the fuck up. It's his greatest performance. No. And and you, you put that movie on, and if you're not <laughs> spellbound in the first three minutes of that movie... Turn it off. How many, but you will be spellbound. How many Philip Seymour Hoffman movies have you seen? I've seen Mission Impossible three a couple times. I've seen. Uh, That's still I've just seen one. Magnolia. I've seen. Uh, there will be blood. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm abandoning ship on that uh, debate. I mean, he is great in Mission Impossible three, but uh, yeah, best performance is a stretch. All right, uh, I guess we got to wait for Steven here. Uh, yeah, don't know where Steven, the fuck he wound Steven's up. Steven's been Steven's been taken by the Red Dragon. See Steven. See Steven transform. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steven's back. So, should we? Do our reviews so we can roll on down to the spoiler room. Yes. Great. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'll give this movie a cue it. You know, it's serviceable. Much better shit has been done in this universe of, of Hannibal Lecter, uh, this iconic character. But it's, you know, it's not a mind blower. It's pretty by the numbers by today's standards. But it does, you know, it moves. It works. You don't have anything better to do. It's a decent sort of thriller to, to keep you up a little bit later than you might normally do yeah i don't know it's honestly it's pretty bland <laughs> but worth <laughs> worth a watch uh if you're a completist i guess i'll say that i feel like the tone of that review was very like a wheelchair on fire rolling down a, a parking ramp that's every review i do though this is the one space that i get to in the show every single time where i'm just like I feel like I have something really important to say and I'm going to try and buy time until I get there and I never do. It's always just a fucking interminable ramble. So I'm going to end it now. Patrick, would you view it, cue it, or screw it? I, I mostly just meant that it kind of felt like you were sliding from a cue to a screw almost as you talked mm. about it more. It seemed like you were getting more negative as it went along. I, I, I think, and that's where I'm at. I, uh no, you know what? I'm going to get on the damning it with faint praise train and give it a cue it. I don't know. I, uh, it's not something I can recommend. It's just, it's just, it's there. It's to me fairly lifeless. It's f- well done, but it just, I don't know. It didn't engage me. Shit. No, it's a screw it. It's a screw it. That's Whoa. it. I'm done. Wow. It's a screw Whoa. it. I just, I just did the thing. I just did the, the wheelchair <laughs> thing. I slid into a screw it. Shit. <laughs> See Patrick's rating transform. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? Uh, I'm going to give it a cue it too. For this is a this is a textbook cue it for me in that I really enjoyed this movie. It works. It was really entertaining for me from start to finish. That said. Is your life going to be any poorer having not seen Red Dragon? Absolutely not. It's like I said, I saw this movie when I was in college. I remembered like two shots from the whole movie. It was like watching a whole new movie. It doesn't really have any staying power. It's very formulaic. The whole profiler, forensic, procedural stuff has been done to death across various uh, mediums since this movie came out, before this movie came out. You could have uh, way more fun watching a movie like Zodiac or something like that. Oh, hell yeah. But it's not bad. It's a good movie, and it's really enjoyable and entertaining and suspenseful, and it it basically worked for me. Everything it tried to do succeeded. Uh, I think it's probably unfairly compared to Silence of the Lambs. I mean, <laughs> I guess that's what you sign up for when you make a Silence of the Lambs <laughs> sequel. <laughs> but um, if this movie had come out and not Silence of the Lambs, I think it would be held in a little bit higher regard than it is. But, you know, not, not holding anything against it it's just you know it's the definition of a cue it because if you don't see this movie your life will be doing just fine so cue it all right well there it is so next as usual we're gonna head down to the spoiler room get into all the spoilers of the ending of this film but 
before we go down there as usual i will remind you all to uh, check out our website every horror movie on netflix.com we've got the master list there of every rating we've given every film so you can uh, embarrass us by figuring out where we've ranked various things and how it makes no sense sometimes someone's gonna look at our list and be like wait a minute you gave booth Nath a higher rating than red dragon <laughs> <laughs> i mean probably yes didn't we we Someone did might be me. <laughs> <laughs> yep that's one of the great pleasures of browsing the list yeah. um but whenever you get through with that go to your social media platforms follow us at amoncast e-h-m-o-n-cast uh we'd love to hear from you hit the comments hit the likes hit the follow subscribe whatever the fuck you do on social media and go to your podcast provider of choice and leave us a review we love to see your reviews see your feedback and it helps people find the show so having gotten all that business out of the way are you guys ready to roll on down to the spoiler room at long last kind of douse ourselves in some kerosene and get this thing moving yeah i'm ready strapped into my wheelchair as we speak all right let's do it we'll see you down there in just a minute We finally crash landed into the spoiler room for Red Dragon. It's time to spoil everything about this movie. So, what are the spoilers from Red Dragon? There are no spoilers in this movie. We're constantly apprised of everything that is going on on both sides of this investigation the entire time. The only real spoiler, which we'll get into, is kind of a ridiculous misdirect at the very end of the film. Kind of a gotcha moment. But, like, yeah, we, we know what's going on. There's a whole thing with the videotape. Well, we know that he works in the fucking lab. Or the, like, this is what he does for a living. Like, of course, that's how he got the tape. That's how he kind of cased out this woman. Um, there, there are no real surprises in this thing at all. As, as it's going along, you see that he works in the lab. And maybe it's not explicitly stated that this is how he's doing it, but it's, it's fairly easy to figure out. And I think the, the narrative is structured that way. I don't think it's a failing of the narrative. I think that's how it's set up you're supposed to kind of see how this is put together and the the suspense is in when will and the fbi are going to catch up but there is as you mentioned Stephen, kind of what you described as a gotcha moment i actually like this twist i mean uh dollar hide loses control of the dragon he's menacing reba uh and at the last moment he seems to commit suicide to avoid hurting her she reaches out, touches his gross shotgun blast wound, but very shortly after, it's revealed that he's placed another body there. It's not actually his body. She just thought it was because she's blind and can't see that it's not him. And he goes back to attack Will and his family in a final showdown. Right. He, she had a date, and she he, and, and Dollarhide shot the guy on the way in, and then he swapped it out. The house is on fire at this point. It explodes because, of course, it does in very dramatic fashion. It's that kind of movie. Now that we're recounting it, none of this makes any sense because Dollarhide is seemingly earnestly grappling with the throes of the red dragon because we see him by himself giving Green Goblin soliloquies to the painting and <laughs> stuff about how he, he, he doesn't want the dragon to take Reba. That, that's honest conflict when he's like going back and forth between menacing her with the shotgun, menacing himself with the shotgun, all that stuff. But then what? He decided he just was going to fake his death instead and burn down his home for the sake of getting revenge on Will Graham, who he barely is even aware of as a person. <laughs> you know, it, it really hasn't struck me before when I've watched any of the incarnations of this, but as I was explaining that just now, it, it hit me in exactly the same way. I was like, wait, this really makes not a lot of sense. And that's the thing. Like, these Thomas Harris books, I haven't read them, so I'm completely talking out of my ass right now. But I get the sense that these Thomas Harris books are like Dean Koontz airport thrillers that are, are, are not meant to back up prestige movies. <laughs> I mean, neither of you has read any of them. I have read, yeah, I've read Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Red Dragon. And I, I mean, yeah, they're not great literature. 
They're interesting police procedurals with charismatic yes. characters. Yeah, yeah. So Dean Koontz. Yeah. No, well, Dean Koontz, I don't know if there's cops in Dean Koontz. It's just like suburban families who have to like pretend they're cops because they're put in peril. Sure. I want to talk about, and by talk about, I mean, I just want to highlight, really, one of the crazier moments in this movie. Dollarhide manages to somehow get into a museum and see the original (laughs) the apparent original red dragon painting which like that is not a thing that makes any sense whatsoever on any level and eats the entire thing while killing two people in the process or he doesn't kill them i think he He eats it he eats it like baby yoda (laughs) (laughs) he does i was gagging watching it it was like fucking impossible how quickly he manages to digest <laughs> this entire gigantic painting. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird plot point of this story that, again, is is part of the story. Red Dragon, the movie, did not make it up, and this also exists in every incarnation, every adaptation so, of this. And every time I see it, so I'm like, stupid. this is so absurd. That's hilarious. And, and, and it really serves no... I mean, again, it, it, it's it's a climax to his whole green goblin situation, but it doesn't really serve the plot at all because we just see this ludicrous scene where he's in the museum, just like blackjacking people and eating paintings. And then the next scene is like Harvey Keitel straight as an arrow being like, some maniac just broke into Brooklyn museum, ate a painting. <laughs> and, and then we're always like, Oh fuck. That's gotta be him. And Harvey Keitel like takes his glasses on and off. And no less than five <laughs> times in that short sequence. <laughs> but God bless. Any anytime this movie showed up with some Hannibal energy, I was there for it. It was great. Like that's a real memorable moment. That's something I've never seen in a film before. I wish this movie had more of that energy of just trying to be just weird and depraved and surprising. But frankly, that doesn't happen often enough. Oh, so you want you you want it to be Hannibal? <laughs> I guess so. I guess Chris. I'm um, next Kino Lorber sale. I'm gonna buy that Blu-ray for eight bucks. We're gonna watch it. Oh, absolutely. Oh my god. Oh, I can't wait. But the Tooth Fairy goes to Graham's house and threatens Graham's little kid. He's got like a yeah, ten-year-old well, well, kid that Dollar Hyde is holding a shard of glass to his neck. It's set up really well, you know. Uh, uh, it, it's really it feels like falling action, and then the, it's a it's a it's a hell of a good presentation because they're out having a fire by the ocean, having some beers, little family, you know, decompressing. It, it plays like normal falling action, but then like yeah. you know, the the kid goes in the house and never comes back, and then it's like cut cut to Harvey Keitel, and they're like, uh, sir, we just got some results from the crime lab. Turns out Dollar Hyde's still alive yeah. and just got on a plane to Florida, and Harvey Keitel gets on the phone. He's like, hey, he's alive! But it's too late. He's in the house. He, he's broken all the mirrors again. That's his trademark. We haven't even talked about that. Okay, but something I found interesting about that was that I felt some of the shock of Dollar Hyde still being alive was diffused by the fact that you do get that Harvey Keitel stuff before Graham finds the mirrors. Like, I would rather him get in the house and, like, see broken mirrors, and you're like, wait, what the fuck? And you think yeah. his son, his son did it? Like, like the girl in Halloween 4? That she's become, do- he's become Dollar Hyde? Or that Graham is fucking hallucinating, like, he trips balls all through fucking Hannibal, the TV show, and I guess maybe my mind was just in that mindset, but I'm like, oh, this could be, like, a cool, oh, it's Graham, like, freaking out, losing his mind, thinking that Dollar Hyde is here? No, he's actually there. But it, it all gets diffused super early by Harvey Keitel making that call. It's a dumb twist regardless. Like, I didn't need it. I didn't want it. I didn't care for it. Oh, I loved but, it. I love it. But at the end of the day, I'm worried about Will Graham's kid. He's going to grow up to be a serial killer. Yeah. He, because Will Graham has figured out sort of that he's, he's gotten Dollar Hyde's journal. He knows his entire psychological profile as best he can tell at this point. And basically tries to use the information against Dollar Hyde by berating his kid, calling him the F word as well uh, during this, this scene. Very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and there's no resolution. There's no, like, we never see a scene of him, like, comforting the kid afterward and be like, 
hey, it's okay. I wasn't yelling at you. I was yelling at the bad man. Yeah, he basically just like homophobe green goblins him and like that's it. I mean, I think the assumption is supposed to be that his kid is smart and mature enough to understand because Graham like snaps out of that character as soon as Dollar Hyde lets the kid go and tells the kid to run. I think the implication is the kid gets what his dad is doing and Dollar Hyde doesn't. No no child that age can process that. I agree. I just think that's what I, I I think that's what the implication is supposed to be. I I thought it was great. I mean, I I really like that scene. Uh, it, the childhood trauma be damned. Um, I I liked how this, he used his it's one smart. unique skill and his yeah. research to full, hit. It's like when Batman fights Two Face and he's got all the coins in his belt and he launches a hundred coins into the air. Yeah, he I uses mean, was- psychology against him. It's it's smart in a way. I just felt bad for the kid. I wanted oh, to yeah. follow up with him, make sure he's okay. But it's a really cool scene. I mean, to see like it's a very clever thing to do to disarm the killer in that moment. Yeah, I was I was impressed by that. But then ultimately, uh, Will Graham's wife is the one who actually kills Dollar Hyde, um, yeah. which may be thematic because there was the whole family versus duty, you know, sub theme, um, but. It's telegraphed because we get the gratuitous shot. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's like, oh, they're moving into a new house. There's a, there's a threat on their life. It makes sense that she would be trained how to shoot. But we get that gratuitous scene where she's like doing target practicing with this revolver. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. You have to disguise those things a little bit better in a movie for us not to be like, oh, she's going to shoot somebody by the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we also should mention another amazing member of this cast. Uh, his wife, Molly, is played by Mary Louise Parker. Yep. yep. But, I mean, Chris, you were talking about the falling action and how we're kind of faked into thinking there's falling action at first. But when we get to the actual falling action, I mean, does anyone else agree that this falling action was absurdly rushed? Like, I, I mean, we've been talking yeah. about, like, this, you know, the trauma obviously inflicted on his wife and kid. We get almost nothing of how uh-huh. the family like recovers or copes with that not even a moment they get on a boat kind of how they it's, bounce back they just get on a fucking sailboat they go live the, living, they go live the jimmy buffett lifestyle they're living an idyllic life essentially there's no no attention given to like how they process this afterwards and we just go back to fucking hannibal and they, and, they process it by changing their latitude and changing their attitude <laughs> We just go to this, like, essentially a post-credit scene, what may as well be a post-credit scene. <laughs> yeah, it, it would, if this movie had come out five years later, it would have been a post-credit scene. <laughs> With the allusion to Clarice Starling, it's just, I don't know, it's such a weird, rushed ending. Yeah, it comes out of nowhere. I, I, I will say I watched most of this movie last night and got distracted by some things and kind of, like, backed up a bit watched it shortly before we recorded and i was like very aware of how much time was left because we have a time to record and i was like even more aware of how compressed that entire final throwdown is and that last shot of hannibal lecter it's it's absurd it's as if there was some kind of like studio note that this movie had to be in a, like a certain length of time. The the other thing that's really weird about this movie I, I, is the geography. I was never able to get a good handle on where the fuck this movie takes place. Yeah. And the way all these characters, including Dollar Hyde, seem to move between like the Florida Keys, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, fucking Chicago. <laughs> like, in it, it makes no sense. I was like, where the hell are they? If he had a green goblin glider, it would make more sense. But I don't know how he's getting around. All right. Well, I'm about ready to be impaled upon that green goblin glider in the style of Willem Dafoe in the first Spider-Man movie. So should we uh, put a fork in the red dragon here? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's call it done. Great film. Great. Fi- it was a it was the best movie I've ever watched that didn't really turn the dial for me. Oh, my God. You know what? Actually, one final note. Oh, Jesus. Man, so the ending of this story in Manhunter is strikingly different. There's a huge shootout between Graham and Dollarhide set to Inagata DeVita, which... Oh, yes! Holy oh, yes! Shit. It's fucking sick. It's so good. I, 
Or I'm watching it tonight. Say I no wish... more. Say no more. I'm going to finally catch up on that. Oh. How cool would it have been if they had just included that as a throwback to Manhunter at the end of Red Dragon? All Red Dragon. <laughs> the same movie. But at the end, it's like, he's like, Dollar Hide's in my house. He goes to like the drawer. He gets his gun. And as he's pulling out the gun, it's like, bow, 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 bow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Better oh. movie. Better movie. The soundtrack to Manhunter is amazing in general. No surprises. All right, well, it's about that time for Stephen to tell us what we're watching next episode. What are we watching, yeah, what are we Stephen? Watching? What the hell are we watching, Stephen? Well, guys, you know, I think we can all relate to the fact that this whole year, it's felt like we've just been treading water. I want to go back to the days when we used to do things A to Z. We had a goal in mind. We're going to the very end of the alphabet on Netflix right now. We're going to watch... Is it? Is it Zombies? Zombies? Uh, no, actually, the, the alphabet... The alphabet of Netflix ends disappointingly with the least interesting letter, which is W, which is just oh. two U's. It's like we ran out of shapes for the alphabet. Uh, we're going to watch Would You Rather? Yes! Which oh. I know nothing about except that apparently Jeffrey Combs, star of Reanimator and so many great Stuart Gordon Lovecraft movies, is in it. Wow. So I just want us to feel a little sense of, uh, of, uh, of chaos. accomplishment. Well, oh. chaos, too. <laughs> I love that approach, and and you know what? We might have to play a little Would You Rather on that episode. I, I think, think we, we might. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> All right. Well, join us next episode. We're going to be watching Would You Rather. We're going to be playing Would You Rather, and uh, we'll see if you would rather listen to it or do something else with your life. <laughs> the choice is we'll, clear. We'll see if I would rather record it or do something else with my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until then, I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. I'm Steven. And we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs> I'm done. Bye, everybody. <laughs> 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 <laughs>